Welcome to With Maze and Mal, a podcast where two sisters come together to talk about growing up, living life, all while managing a rare chronic illness. We have lots to say, and we are finally sharing our stories. We want to acknowledge that we know everyone's experience will look different, and everyone's story is valid, so don't think your journey has to look just like ours. We are not medical professionals, so any recommendations we make on here are based on our own experiences and any changes you make to your care should be discussed with your providers. Hey. Hello. What's going on? Not much. We have been wanting to do this for quite some time now and finally have gotten together to do this because we've had so much going on. And I, I think that's what we're going to talk about. I think our last three episodes, we've been like, yeah, we're going to get better at being on a recording schedule. Yeah. It'll happen someday. And if it doesn't, that's okay. Because the whole point of this is to talk about our lives. And sometimes our lives just happen. Our lives are busy. <laughs> They've been very busy. Um, but I thought maybe you could talk about um, some of the recent presentations you've given. Um, There's been a lot of exciting stuff going on. And then at the same time, um, I was going through some stuff, but also have some exciting stuff coming up. So does that sound like a plan to you? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, catch up. And then once we're finally caught up, then we'll dig into like some more structured topics, I guess. But life just keeps happening. So we'll keep catching you up as it does. Yeah. And we definitely have some topics on board and some ideas for some creative stuff that might go along with that. So we can talk about that a little bit too. It's, I don't know, we're kind of excited about it. Yeah, definitely. We just don't have time. <laughs> Not We don't have time. We, we work a lot and a lot has been happening. Yeah. Um, but let's back up to, gosh, I know the last episode we did was like in the spring. Um, but I know in September you had a really cool opportunity and both of us went to a conference we've been wanting to go to for some time. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, definitely. And we realized I went back and listened to some of our previous episodes and thank you for holding space for us as we, me, I processed some difficult emotions (laughs) in both grad school and healthcare and just getting through life in general. Um, So, you know, we are definitely not about toxic positivity, but I also realized that uh, we have taken turns being in relatively dark places. So grateful to say that things are looking up and there are a lot of cool things happening, like Mel said. So um, yeah, so back in September, Um, I was invited to speak on a panel um, called, I don't remember, but it was something along the lines of like, fuck this, sex while rare. (laughs) Um, I spoke at the Global Genes Conference, um, which is an awesome organization for people with um, rare genetic disorders. Um, And I got to speak on a panel about sex and intimacy and navigating those tricky topics while also managing a rare disease. 
um, which is honestly something that I have always wanted to do and was so incredibly just exciting and like was a serious career goal of mine. Um, I got to speak with a couple of other young people, uh, well, relatively young, um, just about kind of how we've managed relationships and sexual encounters and kept ourselves safe and healthy um, and managing those two things. So that was a huge, like, that was like a, a my personal Everest was getting to speak about that. So that was really cool. And Mal came to support me, which was awesome. So that was a fun sister trip. It was a really fun sister trip. It was a trip that I didn't realize quite how much I needed in a lot of ways. Um, but what was really cool was seeing you present in all your glory after getting your master's and, you know, being able to see that what you want to do is becoming a reality. And for me, not having to present um, was really fun because I got to go and just be a participant at a conference and meet new people and, you know, talk to vendors and stuff like that. So it was a really interesting experience for me um, to be in a supporting role and super, super fun. So um, I know there will be more of that on the horizon. You gave a really cool interview. They were doing like video interviews or whatever, just kind of like on the fly. And I was like watching and being like your PR person and everything I wanted to say, you said like, within the next like 30 seconds and I was like hell yeah and he was like are you gonna come back and do it and I was like I don't have to like she's she said what I wanted to <laughs> she it said was, everything that needed to be said it was awesome it was a really good vibe and I hope your panel is recorded in some way and I I don't know you know what the ability to share it will be um I think it was so hopefully when that's, you know, more widely available, we'll, we'll share that with folks. But I also hope that, you know, in the future, we're able to participate, you know, in more ways. And what I also noticed um, is that that session was so well attended by what I thought was a pretty diverse group of people of all ages and different, you know, disabilities and People want to have that conversation. So I'm really excited that they asked you and that you're continuing to kind of grow this thing that you are so excited about and so good at. It was so wild too, because I it was recorded. Um, it isn't like readily available at this point, but I'm hoping um, at some point it will be more publicly available. And if and when it is, we'll definitely share it. Um, but I was listening back and I felt the imposter syndrome, like leaving my body for a brief moment, because when I was like on the stage, I essentially blacked out. Like when I present, I'm just like, I know this information we will let the lizard brain take over and it's fine. And it usually goes fairly well, but I have no idea what I'm saying, like in the moment. <laughs> and so I went back and listened to it, which was, you know, felt fairly cringeworthy, but moments where I thought I was totally babbling, I was saying exactly what I had hoped that I would say in that moment. Like, I was like, oh, that's like a good question. Like, how would you answer that now? And I answered it exactly how I wanted to. So I just like, I felt it was very, it was very validating. And like, you know, I've always been like the little sister and like, 
we've always told our story together and kind of as a family. And so to kind of have my niche in like the, you know, sex and intimacy, like the social emotional world, um, it was, it was really cool. I felt like I kind of grew my wings that day. So it was, awesome. it was, was so it was very cool. I mean, I will say I, I learned some things. I, you know, it was a lot of things that I had never heard of or thought of in that, you know, perspective. And I thought, you know, the panelists um, were really great. And so, yeah, so that was really exciting. Um, and I think a good way to, that was sort of at the end of September before other things sort of hit the fan as it were. Um, yeah. But before we get to that, I know you had another opportunity yeah. A couple weeks, a couple weeks later. <laughs> yeah. It was wild. It was like August 1st hit. And it was just like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do? And it was like everything that I had like manifested was like coming to fruition. And I was like, whoa, okay, we're going to make this happen, but let's breathe for a second. Um, so a doctor <laughs> that I had worked that had been my doctor, uh, in a previous episode, actually, <laughs> Um, bless him for thanks for listening oh my god love you you're great um provided mom and I actually the opportunity to speak to the association for vascular access um which was essentially um a national group of providers focused on line placement and exactly what it sounds like vascular access um and so we got to speak on sort of patient quality of life and maintaining the longevity of a line and just sort of like how to, not necessarily how to, but the importance of listening to your patient and that often um, with long-term central line owners, um, they know their body best and how important it is to listen um, and with people who have rare diseases, like often they're the expert in what they have and what they're going through and coming up with a solution or a plan as a team um, and kind of not really forgetting that your patient is also a person. And so we got to speak to that. Um, and we also have another one coming up in November at the state level um, where we're going to kind of reiterate that. And it was um, less well attended. <laughs> We were up against two like award-winning presenters. Um, and we were also like a breakout session later in the day. So, but we had a place there, you know, and it was a first step. And I think patients are starting to have more of a voice and more of a place at these things. Um, because I think groups are starting to realize, like, oh, that's a that's a person. <laughs> so I think it's like really it's really cool that, you know, they were able to give us a platform and an outlet to kind of speak, even if it was a, you know, a smaller audience, but people asked really good questions and we networked and we made some really good connections afterwards and got to see some old faces and new faces. And it was just a really cool opportunity. And, you know, again, like we've always kind of been like a, a group unit. And so to kind of branch off and, you know, hear mom tell her story and kind of compare memories and experiences um, was really, was really cool and really interesting. So that was another cool opportunity that just sort of like happened, just appeared. So it was awesome. It was really interesting. 
Yeah, that's that's so cool. It's funny because a few years ago, I spoke at the Colorado Vascular Access Nurses Meeting. And I didn't even know, I think before that, like I didn't even know that existed. I can't remember how they found me. Um, but yeah, that was like an opportunity I had. And what I remember about that was, you know, they had the vendors with the medical products, which is always so interesting. And they had, um, it might've been 3M even at that time, um, you know, the Tegeter with the the gauze around the edge. And I was looking at it, you know, they were trying to tell me how great it was. And I said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I would never use this. And they were like, do you mind if we ask why? And I said, it's very simple. I said, I prefer not to have my dressing be visible, you know, and sometimes when I wear certain dresses or shirts, you know, you can see it sticking out. And for me, that's just something that I prefer not to show. And I I am, you know, fortunate where my line is that I do have, you know, more freedom to sort of hide it and stuff. But their response to me was so interesting because they said, huh, thank you for sharing that because we never really thought about what happens when people leave the hospital. And we'll talk a little bit more about that with my recent adventure that I've had, but it was so wild to me because it just showed like how important it is for, you know, for you and for me and for other people who have long-term medical devices and who are on TPN, like we are living our lives. We are not, you know, living in the hospital and, you know, granted everybody's experience is different. And, you know, some people have lives that look different, but we have lives, you know, and to shift the narrative of, you know, we want our lines to last a really long time. We are not sitting around, you know, waiting for medical providers to tell us what to do. And it was just so interesting. Um, But I'm really glad you had that opportunity. And I hope that I think in that space, there will be more room for consumer voice and consumer patient member, stakeholder, whatever we say these days. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited excited you had that opportunity um and that he asked you to do that. So that's really cool. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I also chatted up 3M hashtag not sponsored, but whatever. Um, they want to. <laughs> and so a couple of things. Um I had the same complaint because I was wearing like a high neck dress. And I was like, you know, I love the CHG tegaderms because of the extra protection it provides. But if I'm going to do like a photo shoot or, you know, wear a certain piece, um, I'll, I'll switch it out for like a regular tegaderm because I don't like the gauze. Like it's very distracting. And when I'm having meetings and stuff, people aren't looking at me. They're looking at the gauze and it's not anything personal. They just, it's distracting and they have questions And so they, bless their hearts, showed me a smaller version of the CHG, which is more coverage just over the site and less like excess. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then they also showed me one that's like just the um, patch itself. And then you can put like a clear tegaderm over that. So they were very like solution oriented, um, but a little cringy. Don't know if this will ever get back to them, but if it does, that's okay. Um, apparently they had models there, like male models there the previous day, and they had like fake IVs, 
um, I guess I, I guess one had like a real line of some kind. Um, but essentially they were all decked out in like fake IDs. And I was like, A, super triggering. Also, this feels a little bit like pretending to be in a wheelchair for an experiment. <laughs> um, and so I said, you know, if you ever want real models with devices and IVs and tubes and shit, I got you. Like, I know a lot of really gorgeous people who have yeah. actual devices. Um, and that feels a little kitschy, a little, I don't know. What the if you're going to do it, go big or go home, like right. do it right. Like, <laughs> or don't do it. Yeah. A little cringe, a little cringe on that. So, huh. um, and I gave them my card and said, if you ever need a model with a central line, hit me up. And they said, great. Um, I don't think they will be. <laughs> That's but. interesting marketing though, especially for like a company that makes scotch tape. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they do. Uh-oh. Who knows? Thanks for the, they're great for wrapping gifts also. Yeah, Love true. your all your products. Love your tape. Um, We had a long conversation about the little green alcohol caps. I will not use them. They dig into my boobs. Uh, Don't love it. I get it. I don't love it. And then Vigon was another one. Hashtag. Vigon totally can sponsor us. Vigon changed my life. I went up to them and I said, are you the makers of the spiral tubing? And they said, we are. And I said, I love you. You know, the people there are just like reps or whatever. They're just getting paid to like table the event. But I was like, hey, when I was five, you saved me about a million lines, you know? So it's like, I think it's really almost like, almost unsettling for these reps and stuff who are so far removed from the production of the product to the consumer that when I go up to them, because I, you know, I had my hair curled, I had a full face of makeup. I was in my little like, sexy secretary presenter dress and they were like oh are you a provider and so I would pull my dress down and say no I use your product and they were like (laughs) like they're not prepared to like see the faces of the people that they know they're impacting and so I think that's the other really interesting kind of crossover um and I think like as we start to have more of a voice and more of a place that will be, I hope that will be more normalized, that people who make the products that affect us start to realize that they affect us. And so I just go up and be like, remember, I use your stuff. Don't fuck it up. Well, and I think also it comes back to like thinking about the medical model of disability because we are not the faces they expect to see of people who use their product. They think of people who are in the hospital, you know, in a hospital bed and, you know, life on TPN with a central line is possible. And so, you know, we're still shifting that narrative. So they don't expect to see us at conferences. And the same thing happened to me when I was at a genetics event and outside, I know I have talked about this, but outside of global genes, I have felt very weird in genetics landscapes because I've gone up to talk to vendors and they have said, are you a genetic counselor? And I said, no, I'm living with a genetic condition. Um, and, and they didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, so I think, you know, creating space for people with lived experience in these 
you know, platforms that are very and historically have been very provider centric is still something we're seeing, you know, evolve over time. Yeah. I'm on a, a, a committee for like a health equity project or whatever. And somebody said, you know, should we include providers? And I spoke up immediately and I said, you know, I think it's important to include them in the conversation when it starts being about concrete solutions as to how to involve people more in their care and their access to care. Um, But I think providers already have a lot of platforms and circles and outlets and space. And I think we need to do better to increase the space for the people that they are helping and, and reaching. And the other thing that I saw that was super cringe and mom and I went to go up to them and we just both got flustered because it was kind of like, it was super cringe. Um, they had a, I, I don't even know what it was, um, what they were advertising or what their product was, but their advertisement strategy was my patient, my line. And so I went up to them and I said, well, wouldn't it be the patient's line? And they said, they, you know, they kind of got defensive and they were like, well, yes, but it's the provider's responsibility. And I said, yeah, but it's in the patient's body. And somebody else came up and said, do you want a cookie? <laughs> and they tried to give me a cookie. And I said, okay. <laughs> like it, it's, they're that far removed that they forget that it is their patient's body. And like, I, I, am- don't, I don't think they had ever even like processed it that way. I am like when you, Maisie, like based on my recent experience, like my heart rate just went up so high when you said that. Mm -hmm. This is what we literally fight for when we're in the hospital. And like I say fight, but advocate and champion and beg and plead and then eventually fight for to have the autonomy over our body to make choices. And I'll talk about when I just did that very recently, but that is legit beyond cringeworthy. Like that is. Yeah, it was. And they were not okay. So oblivious, so oblivious. Um, And so I said, you know, in the presentation and I'll say it here too, but like, it is not like when we're in the hospital and you, I mean, you can talk about your experience right after this, but when we're in the hospital, our job should be to relax and to rest and to let our bodies heal. And when we have to be on high alert because we are afraid that some nurse is going to drag a tubing across a dirty hospital bed and then try to hook us up to it, to the line that goes directly into our bloodstream, we cannot relax. Or... Like or t- touch urine and then go to draw blood from my line that I've had for almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, my patient, my line, but at the end of the day, it's your patient's problem when they get fucking sepsis. So it's your patient's line. But also have been taking care of it for um, over half their life. But also the fact of what that is a play on is literally like what we're arguing for. Like, I can't, I just can't, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty ironic that I was seeing this stuff blown up in front of me and talking to providers about how important it is to listen to patients 
and you were literally trying to get them to listen to you. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Like, talk about it. Yeah. So the ironic thing is as Maisie was flying to Minnesota um, to give this presentation, I was being discharged from the hospital um, on IV antibiotics for a line infection. And this whole thing was like, it was a little bit weird because it didn't manifest in the way that when I've previously had line infections and I've been very, very fortunate. My last line infection was about 18 years ago, which is when I got my last line. And I was not having like standard, like sepsis kind of symptoms, like very low grade fevers on and off. And so I was kind of thinking like there might be something going on, but it wasn't enough to like pursue medical attention. And then um, one morning I woke up and I had a fever of 102. And for us, obviously, like that's the red flag where you're like, all right, I need to like check my boxes, make sure everything's okay. So I went to the hospital and, you know, I said I have a central line and I'm, you know, concerned, obviously. And they were great, I will say. They they were very efficient. They drew cultures right away. They did blood work. Um, my white count was fine, which was really strange. I had no other symptoms. Um, they tested me for COVID, all that stuff. And so they drew the cultures. And by now, like my fever was gone. Um, and we, being the people that we are, had tickets to um, see one of my good friends conduct for um, the Colorado Symphony that evening. And so this wonderful doctor who I had when I was in the ER, you know, said, well, we're waiting um, for the cultures to come back, you know, will admit it. I think he said, you can hang out here um, while we wait for the cultures to come back. And, you know, as I'm sure many of you listening know, being in the hospital means, you know, you're not sleeping, you're not getting your TPN, you're not getting the things that you need to actually be well. And I said, Doc, I'm going to politely veto that um, being admitted tonight um, and today for a couple of reasons. Number one, I have tickets to a show that I would very much like to attend. And number two, I'm feeling fine. My labs, you know, as we're waiting for the cultures, there's nothing alarming happening. You know, it's not anything else. So um, what I'm going to say is that I'm going to go home and go to my show and sleep in my own bed. And then if the cultures come back positive, you give me a, a phone call and uh, I'll come back. And he he agreed with that. And I said, you know, I I appreciate that. And I want you to know that obviously if anything changes, you know, I'm going to call you and I'll come back. I don't want to die, you know, but right now there's nothing alarming happening to my body that I would be concerned about. Um, and I, you know, I'll come back. So sure enough, went to the show. My heart rate was a little high. I knew something wasn't right, but in the meantime, it didn't make sense for me to be hanging out in the hospital, um, which Thank God I didn't add an extra night. We'll get to that. But, you know, then the next day I woke up with a fever of 100 and I didn't feel great. And sure enough, like the phone rang. And as Maisie said, it's sort of like turning yourself over to prison because 
I packed my bag like a little bit better than like my go to the ER bag with like, I, I knew I was going to be staying and I call my neighbor and I said, Hey, what are you doing? Can we stop at Starbucks on the way? Cause I don't know when my next meal is going to be. <laughs> and that began um, a series of different rooms and different providers and telling the same story to every single person. Um, but there was one doctor who I actually sort of want to reconnect with. He was published a lot about patient-centered care and he had a brother um, who had undergone some health issues. So he was pretty in tune with my advocacy, but he actually said to me, I want to thank you for coming back. And I thought that was really interesting because it was like, you know, he said, he said a lot of people wouldn't. And I was like, well, you know, for me, respect works both ways. You know, I want you to respect my autonomy and the decisions that I make. And in doing so, I am going to continue to do what I know I need to do for my health, because I know there's something going on here and I'm not going to wait until I'm septic. Um, but I just thought that was like kind of a nice thing to say of like acknowledging that I I turned over my keys, you know, for a while to figure out what was going on. So that was that was the beginning of the saga. Yeah. But then after um a couple of different transition waiting areas between the ER and getting admitted, I got admitted to what they call an admission transition unit which is very inappropriately named because what it really is, is an overfill unit due to COVID, a few different things due to COVID. Um, but it was a cardiac post and pre-op. So it's not designed for people to stay there for many days. And the first place I was in only, it was basically like when you're in the ER and there's a bed and a curtain, and I was there for two nights next to with between two other people who also had a curtain and there were no windows and I had to go to the bathroom. You know, there was a public bathroom like in the hallway outside the nurse's station. And that was where I spent the first two nights of being in the hospital. And then I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. So that was the beginning of that. I feel like we have been like thinking about like, Barbara Bush and stuff like I feel like we've been a little spoiled and COVID has definitely done a number on you know bed availability and staffing and so many variables but like we've been really lucky in terms of like not having roommates and like having doors <laughs> and yeah. bathrooms and like I think you know I it's it's that should be the norm but I think just given you know the state of the world like we we've sort of taken that for granted like yikes well and what was so frustrating to me was you know the way they presented it and my neighbor who you know went with me through these various places you know they made it sound like this was where i was waiting until i got a different room so i brought it up to different nurses and you know i was like this is not sustainable like i was listening to everybody's eyes and o's and 
what people were going through and their FaceTime calls with family. And like, I was, it was not sustainable. People were listening to the TV all night at, you know, way too loud a volume and just things that were really, really not okay for my mental health or anybody's privacy, which was super weird. But I kept asking, you know, the nurses like, hey, so-and-so said, you know, I might be going to a different room. Like, do we have any updates on that? And everybody would sort of like wiggle the mouse and like shuffle some papers and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to talk to so-and-so. And nobody ever like made any progress. So finally, I think it was like, the second night, I don't know, time was not real. Um, I had this very sweet CNA and it was midnight. And I said, I have been told by people I'm going to be moving to a different room. All I want is an update. All I want is information. And this very sweet, so this person went and got the charge nurse who came and it was interesting because her name was Cynthia. Um, which was the name of my very first nurse, um, who was also very nice to us and has a very special place in her heart. And then the CNA's name was Angel. And so I thought this was a very interesting combination of like the first people that were really like compassionate. And I, I only realized that like later, but I'll take it. So Cynthia comes in my room, pulls a chair over, sits by my bed and explains to me that this is this is where you live now. <laughs> um, but she said, this is a floor. This is a unit where you're going to be until you're discharged, probably. And you're here because you are a very low level of care. You're independent. You're able to go to the bathroom by yourself. Um, you know, you don't, basically, you don't need that much attention. And, um, but... She said, there are some rooms on this floor with doors and a little more privacy. If that is something that you like, I know there's someone moving. And I I literally almost like burst into tears because I was just so relieved that like even that tiny bit. Um, and so by 5 a.m., I was moved um, and there was a couch and a door and it wasn't the Ritz, you know, but I, I was, I was able to sleep. And at the time that was like literally all I needed. So, you know, again, like just listening and, and explaining, I was like, I'm not going to fight to get a different room, but tell me why, tell me what the plan is. Just involve me. So that was, um, a positive transition that happened that someone actually listened and I will say for the most part during this stay, it was the opposite of the time I stayed before. I had a consistent team. I felt that they listened to me and also educated me in a way. Like we had a discussion about my plan of care to the point where I felt comfortable. They felt comfortable. And there was some negotiating. Like, very long story short, doctors always want to remove your central line when you have an infection. I've had my line for 18 years, 17 or 18. And I am in no hurry to get rid of it. The bacteria that I tested um, positive for was one that was very easy to treat. It was not antibiotic resistant. And I had this infectious disease provider who 
worked with me to come up with a plan that we felt comfortable I could go home on. And there was a part of it that I had some hesitation around. Um, and he gave me some information and was like, and let me do my own homework. He let me connect with my pharmacist to be like, is this something people do? Has it changed since I did it last time and had a really bad experience? Um, and we, you know, we came up with a plan and granted, I don't think, I don't think I needed to be in the hospital as long as I was. And the hardest part was that while I was there, I was not getting TPN because they didn't want to use my line. So they were trying to piece together electrolytes and chase my labs. And I had an IV that I had for two days. Um, and then that blew because they kept giving me potassium in it, even though I told them not to, but that's a whole other thing. And so I had it's this not one. Though. It's not though. Like you told them that you did not need that. And because... I did tell them. Huh? I did tell them right. every single day, right. every single day. And so I'm sure there was like my only, my hope in giving them the benefit of the doubt is that there is some red tape that they have to like follow these protocols or something because you told them and that made it worse. And so yeah. like, that's just a, another example of like, you know, they listened in all of these ways, but in one way they didn't. And if they had, it would have been well, and, better. But, but here's what makes me laugh, right? Like you have to laugh about it because you're going to lose your mind. So one night my potassium was low and for me, if my potassium drops and I'm given straight potassium acetate instead of potassium bicarb, my CO2 will drop, which is when you're like really dehydrated and can make you acidotic. And this is what happened the last time I was in the hospital. So what I've resorted to is negotiating that I know oral potassium works for me. So I would say, I don't want the IV potassium. I want oral potassium. And so we negotiated that they would give me like fluid with like a higher percentage of potassium and, I, and oral potassium. I don't know. People were throwing things at me. My blood work was wonky. Eventually I lost track because every day felt the same. But so in one night they gave me fluid with potassium and oral potassium. So in the morning they did my labs. Well, my potassium was high. Shocking. So they so they come in my room and they say, "It why is your potassium high? Does your potassium get high?" And here I, I can't. am smashing my head against the desk right now. I can't. And so I literally said, "Well, my potassium was low, and you gave me an entire bag of fluid." with potassium and then you gave me two little jello shots of oral potassium so that i'm not a scientist and i'm not a doctor but i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say maybe that's why my potassium is high i don't that's know a lot of potassium i don't know shot in the dark shot in the dark potassium so this is, is what one we of those words with if you say it enough times it doesn't sound like a word anymore potassium I, I didn't feel like it was a word. I didn't feel like words made sense. But anyway, so this was the dance I did for five days until I could get my TPN. 
So in the meantime, they didn't want to use my line, my IV blue. And I had this night nurse who was not my favorite. Um, and she came in with chlorhexidine. I guess they have all these weird protocols. If you're in for an infection, they want to wipe you down with a bunch of Clorox wipes every day. Night nurses are a different breed. Let's They're a different breed. A this was also offered that. during the day, though. But what blows my mind about the Clorox wipe sponge bath, <laughs> not once did anyone ask me if I wanted to take an actual shower or hand no. me a toothbrush. That is crazy. The basic hygiene that is lost in the hospital is so upsetting. And ask especially need people ask for what you need, especially oral health, which like they were already asking me, like if I had cavities or like your mouth is a huge source of infection. So I'm already in there for an infection. And they didn't. I mean, granted, I brought my toiletry bag with all my own stuff. But, not but had I not. Yeah. So this night nurse off wanted to clean my line with chlorhexidine, which number one, I am allergic to. And number two, nobody was using my line at the time. And I didn't want anyone touching it because I'm already in for an infection. So this dear, dear, sweet, young infant nurse explained to me and said, you know, we're going to do this with chlorhexidine. And I said, Thank you. My line, my choice. And uh, she Thank said, my line. she said, well, this is what we do with central lines when you're in the hospital. And I said, but I don't use that on my central line ever. Can we, make, can we just make a general PSA? If you don't yes. have a line, if you don't own a central line, don't ask someone with a central line if they want to use chlorhexidine. Yeah. Yeah. And now another wonderful night nurse added it to my list of allergies. Um, but then this night nurse said to me, I am educating you about what we do with central lines in the hospital. And then you smashed her in the face with your IV pole. And I just looked at her and I said, thank you. I understand your policy and I'm going to kindly opt out. Because this is my central line. But here's the thing. That dialogue went on, went on for five minutes. And she kept saying, I am educating you. And I said, we're done. We're done. So, we're done here. So I know we were kind of like chortling about the like, my patient, my line stand. But like, if that is the message that providers are receiving, that is the message that they're going to go to bat for. And it shouldn't be my patient, my line. It should be my patient, my patient's line. Because you know, and I know that like, like, you know, I've learned fairly recently that like for some people, lines are in and out. You know, it's a method of keeping somebody alive, whatever. Not everybody has the same experience with a central line. When you've had one in your body for over 30 years, I, I literally don't know how old you are, but I know it's older than 30. Um, when you've had one in your body for over 30 years, you know what works, you know what doesn't, you know what your body responds well to, and you know what your body doesn't respond well to. And that is what we're trying to like emphasize. And I, I know there are protocols and stuff, but like we have to figure something out so that patients' voices mean something. 
Cause that's crazy. That's five minutes of your time that you won't get back and the nurse's time. Well, and, and it, it gets better about the whole line you're not keeping, but you know, I, I presented on a webinar and, and I always say, you know, there are policies and there are protocols, but there has to be a protocol for when somebody doesn't fit the protocol. I was asking, and this happened in, in my last hospital stay where I was begging for treatment that I knew would help or begging them to do, to not do things I knew wouldn't help, but they were, you know, and then I got screamed at for other things. Like it was so awful, but it was because the protocol was not built for people like us. So there has to be a medical accommodation where if I say I don't use chlorhexidine, okay, refused. And I was refusing the same thing every single day. And I finally asked one of the nurses, why is this not getting documented? I don't want a Clorox white bath. I don't want um, Lovenox shots. Um, But I was refusing the same things every single day. And then the next person would come and offer it. And, you know, I don't thankfully like that. I mean, most of those things were, were preference, but God forbid like that. I mean, chlorhexidine, chlorhexidine, chlor, whatever, chloroprep, whatever, like that sucks to deal with. Like you don't stop itching for a long time. And it's not like a severe allergy, but like, God forbid you forgot to refuse it one day, or you were so tired or dehydrated or exhausted or whatever, and forgot to refuse it actively. Like, come on, like at a well, certain point, you just have to be like, okay, they don't want this. Like, well, and they, so, so the next part of the story, so this nurse, my IV blue and she said, oh, you, we need to give you a midline. You need a midline. And I said, what's that? You know, can you explain it to me? And she said, oh, well, it's like a, you know, not a pick line, but it's a sturdier IV. Basically it's sort of like a pick line. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. Never agreed that that was the plan. Then at six o'clock in the morning, this man comes in to my room. And I realized in hindsight, there wasn't a nurse during this procedure. There was nobody like if something had gone awry in any way, he it was only him and me, which I now think is was a little weird. But he comes in at 6 a.m. and he goes, hey, I'm here to do a midline. And I said, excuse you. And I actually did say, I'm sorry, did a doctor tell you to do to do this or just her? And he said, there was an order for it. And I said, oh, okay. so he starts, you know, spreading out all the stuff. And I said, wait, 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 wait. What is this procedure? What are you doing? What, you know, and they only tell you how great it is. It's going to last a month. And what's interesting is that part of what my infectious disease providers were trying to send me home with was they didn't want me to use my line to infuse. They wanted me to have a pick line. So then I would be going home with two lines that I would be managing. People can't see my face, but I am not amused. (laughs) He's not. It's not a good face. No. But that's the thing. I was like, wait, so you're telling me I'm going to go home with a pick line that I haven't had since I was a child, which infiltrated, not a good feeling. And I'm going to be managing IV antibiotics, a line I'm not using, but would like to keep and a pick line I've never managed before by myself with one hand. Amazing. I love that for me. No, I don't. No, I don't. 
So they're trying to sell me on this midline. And, the, you know, the guy comes in, he's, and granted, he was very nice. Um, but again, they only tell you how great it is. So he starts doing the midline. He was very kind, explained everything he was doing. And I, I just laid there and silently sobbed, looking the other direction while he did this, like in my left arm. And I mostly started crying because, A, I was sleep deprived. And I this is what I call the day three meltdown. It's where I just hit my breaking point. And I told this very... One. We all have one. I told this very kind gentleman, this has nothing to do with you. It doesn't hurt. I'm just so tired. I'm <laughs> not he, a baby. I just I'm not a baby. Day. I just had a bad day. But he was very sweet and that like made it worse. Like I just, I just was sobbing. And I also was crying because I thought he was done and he didn't get it. And I was like, oh no, for me. So he did the midline um, and it was fine. But like you said about chlorhexidine, I wasn't watching because I didn't want to watch that. And he put a bio patch on. So I did have that moment where I wasn't able to advocate. And then my arm, you did see the repercussions. And when I tried to tell people it was red, they told me it was bruising. It wasn't. It was an allergic reaction. Unreal. So then I'm getting ready to leave. And so this is, no. So then two days later, the line that's supposed to last a month is hurting me very, very badly. And I told my nurse and I told my doctor and everyone said, just keep an eye on it. Just keep an eye on it. And I was like, okay. I so don't I want kept to, an, I want to sleep. Yeah. So I kept an eye on it and it kept getting worse and it kept getting worse. And then all of a sudden my hand hurt. And this line was like in my bicep, like in my upper arm. And my dominant hand was like cramping and not like I couldn't use it. So I had this really sweet night nurse who was a game changer and said, I got overwhelmed looking at your chart. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go talk to her because she's the best resource we have. Incredible. Yes, Alexis, you're doing it right. Hooray. Um. So she was lovely, but I told her that my arm was hurting really bad. And I said, when do I need labs? Because I think this line that's supposed to last a month, we're on day two and I think something's wrong. So she tried to draw blood back and there wasn't any, which meant it had infiltrated. So she took it out and my arm was super swollen and super sore. Um, So thank God we did that. And if only the other three people I talked to had listened to me. Um, so fast forward a bunch of other stupid stuff. Finally, I'm getting ready to go home. I've worked with my infectious disease providers to come up with a plan. They're going to let me infuse using my line. My cultures are negative. Um, I'm going home on a simple IV flush and an antibiotic lock that now has heparin in it. And it didn't 20 years ago. Lesson learned. Um, So I'm literally packing my bag, getting ready to go. My doctor comes in 
and looks at my arm and says, why don't we get an ultrasound? Like, just to be sure. And this is where my midline was. So they do an ultrasound and me and my neighbor are like packing up, ready to hit the road. And this guy comes in with an x-ray machine and he says, now we're going to get an x-ray. And I was like, that can't be good. That can't be good. So we did the x-ray. And as you know, discharge never happens quickly. So we're still hanging out, waiting for whatever. And the doctors come in that I've had, two lovely women with the names of cheerleaders, Stacey and Courtney, but I love them. They were kind. We had Barbies named exactly those things. We did. They were, um, they were friends, Stacey and Courtney. I knew I knew that from somewhere. So you could tell they were very reluctant to come in my room. And they come in my room and they sit down and they said, so it's what we thought it was. And I'm going, I didn't even know what they thought it was. I didn't know any theory about what was going on with my arm. And they said, so you have a blood clot. From my midline. That you didn't want. That I didn't want, that I didn't consent to. But also what I what I realized as my brain is going doing a flashback, Alexis that morning later said something about heparin. And she goes, there's an order for heparin. And I go, oh, yeah. And she goes, oh, that's for your midline. Which you don't have anymore. And I said. Huh. Nobody put heparin in my midline the entire time I had it. And one of the nurses said, oh, you even have heparin in your bag. You're that girl. And I said, huh, I do. Because like Maisie said, we are so vigilant caring for the line that we're going to keep. I figured they knew what they were doing with the line I was going to get rid of. So I didn't even think, and there were times when it wasn't infusing for like hours at a time. And I told my doctor, I said, I just want this on the record that the entire time I was here, nobody put heparin in my line. And the doctor said, huh, I don't know a lot about line care. And I said, and I just looked her dead in the eye and I said, oh, I'm aware. And if you did, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So now I am on blood thinners through the end of the year and my arm hurts because I have a blood clot and I have to be really careful because now I'm on blood thinners and I don't know what pain is from my blood clot and my IV infiltrating and the chlorhexidine reaction I had and my arm was a mess. And so, you know, it's never fun leaving with things that you didn't go in with, um, but I guess I should be grateful. And I am very grateful that I got to keep my other line. Um, it was a circus. And then when I get home, the the other things that happened with people calling me who I had never met before, telling me where I needed to go get blood work. Um, they sent the lab orders to my TPN company because they thought I was homebound and that they did my labs, even though they just deliver medical supplies. So that was a whole thing to sort out. And so I sorted that out. And then I told them where I get my labs and it's outpatient and I don't let them use my line for obvious reasons. 
So they call me back again and, you know, they say, well, it's fine to go, you know, wherever you want to go, but we need to make sure you're getting a dressing change. Oh my fucking God. Yeah. And I kind of popped off because now I'm home and I'm like on a Zoom meeting trying to, you know, live my life. And I just said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been, I've had a central line for 37 years. I'm getting a dressing change. Everything is fine. Don't worry about it. So then I go to get labs and I had asked before being discharged when I found out I needed weekly labs, if the orders were in, are the orders in? I'm not going to go to the lab if the orders aren't in. Sure enough, they weren't, but I didn't go because I saw that they weren't. Um, But then when I was going to go, I saw that the orders were in. And I also saw there was a note that said, Mallory will go to the outpatient lab for weekly labs and a dressing change on her pick line. I'm laughing. I'm literally like, I am sick to my stomach. Like, I, I know who... I, there's just so much miscommunication. I, I'm speechless. I'm literally, like, you were keeping us posted this entire time, but, like, see, hearing it laid out like this, like. And that's, that's not even everything. Like, those are the, the highlights, but, you know, and this is a good experience. This is the good experience. And so then I get to the lab where I go all the time and they said, oh, what arm? Da, da, da. And I said, well, this arm, not the one with the blood clot. That's like a balloon. And they go, oh, is your line in the other arm? And I go, no, just ignore, literally ignore that. Like, none of that is correct. Like, do you see? No. Mm-hmm. And, but what's, but what's scary is that this call was from the nurse at the antibiotic center. And the reason I was on antibiotics was for my central line, not a pick line. So I can't. Anyway, so at the end of the day, everything is better. I went to my infectious disease follow-up to see somebody I've never met before in my life. It was a three-second appointment, Um, but he told me I could end my antibiotics early. So that was really good. And I'm down to my blood thinners once a day. So as far as things can go, we got the best outcome possible, regardless of the chaos. But it is chaos. It's chaos. It's a game of telephone. Literally. Oh, my God. And like, I think the biggest thing and like mom and I talked about this when we were presenting, too, is like we know a couple of things. We know healthcare workers are human. We know everyone is, we hope, we assume everyone is doing the best that they can under the circumstances. We also know that there is some red tape and protocols and administrative guidelines that providers have to follow. We are asking that you work with us to communicate what those parameters are so we can negotiate with you what is going to keep us safe. Because we know our bodies and you know your rules. And we don't want anyone to get in trouble. And we don't want anyone to break or bend the rules for us. But we need to know what the steps are that we have to take to ensure that we do not leave the hospital in worse shape than when we got there. And that's the biggest thing. Like, just communicate. Like, 
it is still our, and one thing that came up during our panel is just the lack of bodily autonomy that you leave the hospital with. And for people who are in the hospital for extended periods of time or like, you know, multiple visits or whatever, like you lose, it's, it's consent. It comes down to consent. There's so much overlap because it's like, they don't get to just grab your body and put whatever they want into it just because they're a doctor. Like they, they don't, that's not how it works. And I think we put, you know, I have the utmost respect for healthcare workers. I really do. But at the end of the day, they are still human and I need to approve whatever you're going to stick in my body. And I am usually on, I'm usually on board with most things, but I just need to know. And that needs to be a conversation. And that's where things fall apart is when they're just doing things without talking, you know, or, or person A tells person B and then person B has to try to explain to you what person A said, like, stop, stop. I know you're all short on time, but that brief conversation, that brief explanation will save us all so much time down the road. I promise you, it will save you paperwork in the long run. If nothing else, do it for that. Like, Mylanta. Well, and it's really interesting too, because watching the reactions when you ask questions and when you refuse something, like there are people just getting medication that they, because it's part of a protocol. In August, Owen was in the hospital with an infection because he cut his hand, fixing his own wheelchair, which is a whole other provider nightmare is wheelchairs and scooters, durable medical equipment. And when he came out of surgery, they were giving him like the standard medication cocktail that you get when you're on certain pain medications. But then they started having like negative effects and he was like having to refuse them. But they were like, well, we just give these to everybody. It's like, well, it's not working. So can we stop? Like the idea of a standard protocol is fine until it's not. And the when you question something, it's like there's a pause because they don't they don't know how to respond. And I say that because they're not trained how to respond. You know, these there are young medical professionals totally get it. But when I'm being very kind and informing you what I do with my body and I'm telling you I don't want something, then the education script needs to stop and we need to take a pause and we need to figure out how to proceed. And what I think is really another thing that's interesting, and Maisie, you and I talked about this, and I think this is going to be sort of a future thing that we produce in in various forms. When I got to the ER, I, you know, I wore my very comfy hospital going clothes that allow access to the things that need to be accessed, but I'm comfortable and I can move and you know, hospital gowns are not made for everybody. They're not one size fits all. They're just huge and they're unsafe for somebody who can't wear them. So, you know, I get to the ER and I've got my go bag and my Starbucks and I walk in and, you know, they say, all right, get up on the table and you can put on this gown. And I looked, you know, at them very kindly and I said, no, thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to stay in this. And it was just silent for like 30 seconds. And they were like, okay. (laughs) you know, but it was like, people don't even know they can do that people. Mm -hmm. And I posted on Instagram, you know, in my Insta story, 
I brought, you know, some of my favorite pajamas that make me feel very comfortable, but you can access my line. And, you know, I know a lot of our followers love this brand of PJs. They're great for folks with central lines. Um, And I posted on Instagram, like just here chilling in my, you know, real housewife PJs, doing my eye mask, you know, having some self-care and the things I have control over. Mm -hmm. And I had people who don't have, you know, chronic illnesses or disabilities message me and say, I didn't even know I didn't have to put on the hospital gown. I remember when I was little, I had to have surgery or something and they gave me jammies. Like they gave me soft, like flannel type jammies. And I was like, oh my God, can I get these every time? And I didn't even know. I think there was one time, um, mom was with me and I had like a meltdown because I, I don't know, jammies are not comfortable and they like make you feel exposed and infantile and gross. And like, I just was, I, I had a meltdown because I didn't want that. Like I already felt like things were out of control and all I wanted control over was what I was wearing. That was all. I, and they're ugly and they're stupid and I hate them. And sometimes I like them when I'm super bloated and gross, but you know, it's not just like casual wear. And mom was like, you don't have to put that on. Like, I'm not fighting this fight right now. And I was like, really, I don't. And she was Mm -hmm. like, no, you don't have to wear that. It's fine. And I was like, okay, okay, I don't. And like, I, you know, I get if there's some sort of like extreme emergency situation and they need to be able to get all up in here. But if I am, and, and again, it goes back to protocol. I'm sure there's a protocol that says, have the patient put on the Johnny so you can access everything you need to access quickly and easily. And like, I'm just picturing my boyfriend in my ear being like, well, then we can't get to, da, 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 da. we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. As long as I am up and talking to you, I can remove my shirt and close in ways that you can access what you need to access. But like, in the meantime, let me have this. Well, and on the flip side of that, they also never asked me if I wanted to change my clothes in four days. Like I had my, you know, suitcase of clothes that I had my support system bring me. My bed did not get changed. My room did not get cleaned. I had ultrasound jelly all over my shirt and you know, God knows what else. And not once did anybody ask. Like, And maybe it was because they knew I was independent, but it concerned me because I was like, you know, maybe I wanted them to hand me a shirt or maybe I didn't have extra clothes. Like, who knows? But none of those like basic caring for yourself and your environment. Again, I'm in there for an infection and I wore the same shirt for three days. Like, those were the things that were weird to me. And so why I, you know, I'm grateful I was able to, you know, ask to get unhooked so I could change. And, you know, I brought my fuzzy slippers so I could walk to the bathroom. And, but I mean, you eat in your bed, you know, you're in your bed and it was gross. And I just can't, And like, I don't know. know. It was weird. Like, I know we're relatively high maintenance at the best of times. But I just wonder, like, what is the, like, yes, okay, so you were independent, and they saw that you had a support system, and, you know, they assumed you were ambulatory or whatever, but, like, what what does that look like for people who aren't and for people who don't? It's is there not- a protocol for them? 
or do they also have to like and and the other thing is like you know if they do and I feel so bad because I understand that everyone is understaffed and underpaid and overworked I get it I get it but you are working with people you know it's real bad if somebody calls you to their room because they shit themselves for the fourth time in the afternoon like I promise you they don't want to be in that situation either I Mm -hmm. promise you but don't make them sit in it for that much longer like I don't I don't know I don't know it's really complicated and not to go down like a policy rabbit hole because this episode is way too long already but um when I worked for the state Um, we learned about a policy that, so if an individual um, who has disabilities has a personal care attendant, that personal care attendant cannot get paid to support them in the hospital because it's duplicative billing, because the the understanding and the perception is that the hospital has staff that are addressing those needs. My jaw is on the floor. My jaw is on the floor. We know this. We know that's not true. Like a nurse is not coming in, turning people. Um, you know, when Owen was in the hospital, he had to go to the bathroom. He pressed the call button. No one came. So I I helped him because I was there. But people with disabilities do not get the support they need. And they're not allowed to, to have their support person get paid because of a of a billing thingy. And so we used to, you know, and unfortunately it wasn't something that was within our caliber to change, but we had partnered, you know, with like the hospital association and like this issue was getting raised. But now more than ever, like those kinds of little things are so unacceptable. They're so like people need all the support they can get. And those direct care workers need to get paid for whatever they can. So when I learned that. Yeah, the hospital would love the extra support, I'm sure. I'm sure there are many people who need the one-on-ones who aren't getting it. And then the people who do support their, uh, their person that they're aiding are the rule breakers. And I'm sure are punished because they're either working when they're not supposed to be, or that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. This is why policy is important. People listen, yeah. listen. So, so that, that was my most recent adventure. And what I will say, because I don't want to, always talk about the things that are that are bad um i fortunately this hospital stay did not tear me down physically and emotionally so much that i was not able to give feedback which mm-hmm. i didn't during my last day because i was just too broken yeah. um i did fill out my survey and i started it with a list of people that were good to me that were really good and i gave their names and i gave their titles um, and I said, I want to start this by identifying the people who went above and beyond and who made me feel respected and listened to during my stay. Mm-hmm. And I I told people while I was in the hospital, I said, you made it to the list of people who were nice. Mm-hmm. And one person said to me, it's really sad you have that. <laughs> and I said, it is, isn't it? But also, I want that to be recognized. Yeah. And so I, you know, I always try to identify the champions that's how we were raised and i want those people to be recognized because if they're not they're going to leave everyone's leaving and you know we need the good ones to stay so that was sort of my last you know contribution and i filled out my survey and i still might 
email a patient representative um, or call them about the whole heparin thing, because I truly believe that even if it's not scientifically documented that you need to heparinize a midline, if there's something you can do to prevent a blood clot and you do it in every other type of line, why not do it? If there, especially if there was an order for it that no one was following. Weird. That's, that's weird. problematic. Yeah. So anyway, wild. That's that's my last uh, three weeks. Anyway, I'm glad you made it out relatively unscathed. Yeah. So, so. okay. Uh, healthcare nonsense aside, what do you have going on? A lot of things. Um, oh. I have my. I have my real um, big girl job, but I also have um, something yeah. very, very no. exciting. Go ahead. I'm excited for you. I'm going to okay. shut up now. Um, so tomorrow I fly to Atlanta for a very quick 24-hour um, stint, um, really to walk around a hotel for an hour, which is literally my dream, um, because I was very fortunate to get a contract um, as an ADA consultant for national public health conferences. And so what that means is that I get to work with a national meeting planning company to support this uh, public health organization to plan their conferences in a way that are um, that is accessible to people with all disabilities. And this is super exciting because for those of you who don't know, I really only got into this work because I loved going to conferences and I loved traveling. And when I would come back, I would write reviews of the hotels I stayed in and talk about, you know, if they were accessible or not. And so, you know, I am now going to do that um, for money and, you know, be able to go see these hotels and work with the organization and think about things that would make the experience better for conference participants and, you know, so that they can have an equitable experience and maybe hopefully make some changes, you know, some bigger changes within the hotels. So I'm really excited. Um, And I sort of, it's like that imposter syndrome, Maisie, where I was like writing my contract and like doing my proposal. And I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then I'm like, yes, I do. I do this in my own life. Like, this is what I love. Um, so to be able to have that opportunity, um, it's a little bit scary because it's, you know, it's something I've never done before, but it's closer and closer to like literally what I want to do. So dream job. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So crazy. I'm so excited. And I don't know what our reach of this podcast is, but I mean, everybody is on the diversity, equity, and inclusion train. And I think the disability community is one that often goes unaddressed, unacknowledged. And so if you want to talk to somebody about how to make your organization more accessible, you know, websites, hotels, buildings, like, there you go. There you go. Reach out because that is so needed. And so I think like we think so obvious but having somebody who can really pinpoint where those changes can be made and have a significant impact on someone's experience that will significantly improve your organization, your conference, your event, like utilize it. Well, and, you know, like you said, the things that we think are obvious, 
I've learned are are really not to everybody. And sometimes it's just about getting somebody in there who can make you look at things a different way. And, you know, you want to think that things are common sense, but sometimes basic things like, you know, are your buffet trays down low? You know, I know that I can never reach food at conferences. Um, Are there, you know, spaces at tables where people in wheelchairs can access them? Is there a ramp to the stage for presenters? Is Is there there an elevator? (laughs) An elevator, you know, basic things. And all of this sort of started when we were planning a meeting for my real job. Um, And I asked the meeting planner who was working with the hotel. I said, can you just ask him like about accessibility? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, those things, you know, is there an elevator? Are there ADA rooms? You know, and ironically enough, the elevator was broken off and on the whole time we were there. Um, So they didn't mention that. But then, you know, at the end of the meeting, she was coming up to us saying, like, would you be interested in like doing consulting around this? And my team kind of like joked about it and was like, oh, yeah, we'll start our consulting firm, da, da, da. And I sort of like leaned over to the meeting planner and was like, I actually I do consulting and I have an LLC and I I would love to learn more about that. So she reached out to me um, and they supported me to like submit a proposal. And I just got my contract signed, you know, signed contract back today. So like it's really happening. And I'm just like, this is so close to to what I want to be doing. And, you know, I've done some um, DEI stuff and speaking about equity and working with people with disabilities in the workplace and you know, so like Maisie said, if that's something you want to learn more about or, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, but yeah, there's there's exciting stuff coming up. And I'm glad that hopefully this healthcare stuff um, for now is behind us and we can just charge forward with, I think, a lot of exciting big changes coming up in our lives. So it's crazy. It's crazy. Have a little faith in the universe, you know, it'll come through. Manifest it. Yeah. So that's awesome. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. That's very cool. There's some other projects that we have a hand in and hopefully, I mean, I don't, I don't want to keep making empty promises. We might have some stuff. I don't know. There's only so many hours in the day, but we have, we have a lot of ideas, but we're idea people. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I think some of, I think we'll make them happen when, when the time is right. So we just love being able to connect with everybody and, you know, everything that you message us or DM us, you know, really informs what we talk about. And, you know, it helps us learn where people are at and what people are experiencing. So we're just, we're just grateful to have this platform and that people are still listening. So yeah, thank you. We appreciate your support, regardless of how sporadic our episodes are and that's just life. You know, this is the thing we do on the side to catch up with each other and to catch up with our friends. And we appreciate that. Some of you just want to hear us talk, <laughs> but awesome. All right. So, you know, the drill, follow us on Instagram. You can find us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google, wherever you get your podcasts and all that. Um, I am at the underscore Maisonator. Mallory is at Carb Cuts N, the letter N, Cocktails. And we are with Maze and Mal, spelled out. I double-checked. So follow us on all the platforms. Reach out if you want us to talk about anything specific. Um, let us know, you know, what you've experienced. We're always happy to 
lend an ear and commiserate. Um, and until then, we will talk to you next time. Thank you.